I will work day in and day out to wake up and smell the coffee. We want to return to the European Union. Another future is possible, but we've got to fight for it. Order! Hello and welcome to the Debated Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Will. In this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Anthony Broxton, uh, behind Tides of History, one of the best uh, Labour Twitter accounts, history Twitter accounts out there, also the author of a new book, Hope and Glory, Rugby League in Thatcher's Britain. Welcome to the podcast, Anthony. Thank you for having me on. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure to have you on. Now, um, the first question I'd like to ask is what made you want to write this book in the first place? I think the moment that we're living in, uh, particularly when I came up with the idea for this book, was around 2019, uh, general election. I was out uh, in Lee in the northwest, and I was I was given a leaflet by a Labour activist when I was walking through the town, and it had a picture of Margaret Thatcher's handbag on it, and all it said on it was, "Don't let them finish the job," and this was Labour's message to the people of Lee to say. Boris Johnson is Thatcher 2.0. 1980s was terrible. Don't let it happen again. And I think there was, there was a lot around Labour's messaging in that general election that was very Thatcher-oriented, which I thought was quite bizarre for a political party. You know, I've written a book about Margaret Thatcher, so I probably shouldn't be saying this, but we're 40 years on almost from Margaret Thatcher. And the idea that people in those areas are going to vote a certain way in a general election because of how they feel about a person that most of them probably don't know or understand anymore. I find that quite bizarre. And then the fact that Labour lost a lot of those red ball seats would say Margaret Thatcher maybe doesn't have the political potency that some in Labour, particularly Jeremy Corbyn and others, who were obviously, you know, came through politics in the 1980s and still see her as the person that is at fault for all the problems that Britain has. And, you know, you can have a big debate about where it starts, where it ends. But I thought that was interesting. So my idea was to then look at another aspect of that election, which was the Workington Man and all the rugby league towns that switched from Labour to Conservative and the Conservative by claiming rugby league supporters as their own. And to basically just look at the story of rugby league in the 1980s in the Thatcher years. It's a social history. It's a cultural history. It's political as well. I wanted to look at the sport. Well, probably for the purposes of this podcast, it'd be good to talk about the political side of it because I'm a big believer that things like sport, entertainment, culture should be, you tell the story of that through the politics or the politics through that as well. So people like Dominic Sambrook, Al Turner, David Kinnison, they were the people that I found most interesting when I was growing up and first getting into history. So I wanted to do the rugby league equivalent of that book and yeah, thankfully no one had ever written about this period before, which I found quite interesting when you think of the fact that Thatcherism is so such a potent issue in the North, mm. as we discussed, but no one had thought about linking the two with, with the rise and fall of rugby league in this period. So that was my starting point for the book, yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And what I find interesting is that at the start of the book, um, you refer to rugby league as a Northern game watched by Northern people. Mm. How important do you think it was for people who not familiar with rugby league, to make it clear that it had such deep cultural connections to the north of England. Yeah, absolutely. So if, if the people who listen to the pod who, you know, not that interested in sport, or don't know much particularly about rugby league, which would probably be a lot of people because rugby league is such a minority sport for many reasons, predominantly because it is played in the north. Now, essentially, we could spend 
10 hours discussing why it happened and what happened after yeah. Well, essentially, there was one code of rugby at one point in the late 1800s, and the northern clubs, clubs like Wigan and Batley and St. Helens and Witness, wanted to pay their players some compensation when they got injured because they usually worked in factories and mines and industry. So if they got played, injured playing, they couldn't work for a week and they'd lose money. So they were, they were agitating for this change. And because the, the rugby union clubs, which were which became rugby clubs were predominantly based in the South. You know, there were lawyers, there were bankers, there were MPs, all the rest of it. This is, this is, by the way, I'm neutralizing a big issue into quite a, a short, easy to understand uh, answer. The two split. So you ended up with the Southern Rugby Union clubs who wanted to maintain themselves as amateur. We won't pay the people for playing. And the Northern clubs who were built around areas that were strong in the Industrial Revolution in Yorkshire, in Humberside, in Whitehaven, all across the north. They became rugby league. And essentially, the, the, the areas where the games are played has pretty much stayed the same in the 125 years since. And that's a bit of a problem for rugby league because it struggles to get the media profile, it struggles to get the interest, it struggles to get the sponsorship, particularly now in 2023 when it's up against rugby union, which is based in London, based in the south, and can attract all these blue chip sponsors mm -hmm. because of essentially the sport of supporter base are generally more affluent. So that appeals to broadcasters, it appeals to sponsors. We've just had a Rugby Union World Cup where people will pay hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pounds to go and watch a game in France. Whereas the Rugby League World Cup, you could get tickets for 15 quid. Not many people wanted to go either. So that's where it's So yeah, so, so, so Rugby League ended up becoming the sport of the industrial north alongside cricket, alongside football. I always get in trouble when I say it was the support, sport of the working class because Football was obviously always popular. But in a town like Wigan, where I'm from, for example, in the 1950s, when rugby league hit its peak, you know, 50,000 people would be going watching the Derby against St. Helens, you know, which was equivalent to sort of who were going watching Manchester United, Liverpool, Everton. It was the predominant social activity after the war for people in these areas. And when you had full employment, you had jobs, you know, whether it was mines, fishing, you'd hull, shipbuilding, you'd Cumbria, Etc. The rugby league was the predominant weekend activity of that workforce, and that's basically where it sort of grew its roots and its strength from in in the early post-war years. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And um, in the introduction, uh, you say that we still don't fully understand what happened in the north in the nineteen eighties. Do you think this is because we're used to a kind of like a fixed narrative? about industrial decline, the minor strike, etc., which paints a very particular picture of what happened in the north of England in the 1980s. It's one that's been reinforced by media portrayals and film and television. And so that has meant that we've got an idea about what we think happened in the north in the 1980s, but it's not the complete picture. 100%. And I think that's half, you know, half of the job of this book was to sort of show that there was industrial decline Obviously, you can't get away from the fact that a lot of the areas where rugby league was played were massively hit. It hit the sport. It hit the supporters with unemployment rates. Clubs had to reduce ticket prices. All the things that came with that early 1980s recession. But it was obviously, like any story of Britain in the 1980s, one where you have people starting their own businesses. You have people buying the council houses. You have people who did vote for Margaret Thatcher, even if it was in smaller numbers than it was in the South. So just to paint a sort of grimy picture of the North in this period, 
you know, is it the true reflection? And like you say, you'll get a lot of cultural, um, you know, sort of watch movies that are, you know, very romanticizes period, you know, potentially something by like a Ken Loach. I don't actually know if he's done something on the minor strike, but, you know, and, and they're great and they tell a certain side of that story. But at the same time, there were people in pit communities who did want to work. There were people who thought yeah. this might not be the right strategy. There were people, you know, we I've been on another podcast with you where we talked about Jim Callahan in the 1970s, yeah. who was had the same kind of um, description of what was wrong with Britain as Margaret Thatcher would. Mm. Everybody was trying to fix the problem of British industrial decline in the 1970s. You know, hence a town like Wigan where I opened the book. The, the decline in that town sort of happens in the 60s and 70s when the mines close. It's already happened before Thatcherism takes hold. It's why it's one of the areas actually that recovers quicker and can become a bit more of a leisure economy compared to somewhere like Featherstone in the book, which yeah. in the mid-80s was still a one-industry town centered around the coal mines. So, yeah, I wanted to bring together, you know, I wanted, obviously wanted to talk, talk about the industrial impacts, but I wanted to look at the way rugby league and rugby league people wanted to market the game, the way they brought sponsors on board, the way they essentially said to, you know, governments and, and businesses, you don't have to, you know, say that this is the end of, of a town or a community. We can come back. And the sport and rugby league's revival was a, a central part of that revival um, by the 1990s. Mm -hmm, absolutely. Um, you, you touched upon the the, um, the 1960s and 70s there. And early on in the book, when you're discussing the decline of the sport, you make the point in November 1963, only 324 people watched Bradford's rugby league side play against Barrow. And yet, not long after, about a month after, um, the Beatles played at the Gorgon Cinema to a packed audience. How much do you think this demonstrates that in the 1960s there was a real shift in terms of what young people wanted to see as entertainment? And this was, in a way, the beginnings of the kind of accessible entertainment culture that we have today, where established forms of entertainment had to really compete with much newer ones. I think that's a really good point, and I'm glad you picked that one. Um... The reason I wanted to show that is because when I was looking in the sort of archives at this mythological Bradford fixture that only had, you know, 300 odd people there, there was adverts for the Beatles to be playing in, in the city. And that's where all the young people wanted to be. And you saw the this pattern, you know, happen in other places, Wigan that we've already talked about, you know, Wigan Casino, which became the sort of place for young people to go in the 1970s to create their own form of entertainment that was very different to what had happened just after the war. If you think about post-1945, the only thing that people that wasn't really rationed and taken away from people was sport. They could go after a, a you know, week at work and go watch a rugby team or football team or rugby union team or whatever it was. And you got this mass growth in spectator sport. And by the end of the 1950s, early 60s, rugby league decided to have to address the problem that not many young people want to follow their fathers, their mothers, in watching rugby league, not just in terms of the jobs. And you see a lot of these sort of kitchen sink dramas in the 1960s about, you know, rebellious teenagers. There is one in rugby league called This Sport in Life, which is about something a little bit different. But it's there was a, there was clearly a shift towards a different sort of youth culture, teenage culture. And you see that through the rise of the Beatles. And rugby league is much more than any other sport, the first really that can't handle that change in demographic. So towards the end of that period, so many people within the game are like, how are we going to get young people into the sport? How are we going to get them just to turn up 
and watch rugby league. This is bef- before the era of mass entertainment, before games, before you could buy food at games, before you couldn't really buy drink at games. So if you were going, that was the thing that you did on a Sunday and you were going to what? The match. So it's a bit of an alien concept now, now that we live in the you know glamorous world of 2023 where sports clubs are trying everything they possibly can to get young people through the door, some successfully, some not successfully. But you think you're right. That was a certain shift that happened within new culture and rugby league was not immune from it. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, you make the point that um, after the Second World War, one of the things that, that wasn't rationed, perhaps the only thing that wasn't rationed was basically sport. Um, and Eddie Waring um, makes the point, as, as you quote him in the book, that it was the only free outlet. And one of the things that really reminded me of um, in terms of the impact of sport on culture, particularly youth culture, was um, Carl Ching's book on the uh, gangs of Birmingham in the 19th century and how one of the things that ended the, um, the, the, the slogging gangs was the rise of association football. How important, therefore, do you think that sport is as a positive outlet and one that's sociological and cultural impact has been a bit overlooked in terms of the way we think about history and in terms of the way we think about the way that society changes? Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I, I'm not actually familiar with that research, so at the end of this, I'm actually going to look at it because <laughs> I'm very interested in how you know sport influences people much more than politics does. And... That's why I wanted to, you know, situate the politics of this decade around the rugby things that was happening in rugby league. Because sometimes it was ahead of, particularly what the Labour Party was tr- trying to achieve in the 1980s. Rugby league as a sport was already well ahead of the Labour Party in terms of saying things like, we're going to start treating people like consumers. We're going to start marketing to people. We can't just give them. We can't just expect them to vote, to, to watch rugby league and vote Labour by extension just because of their class. And I think, when you when you try and situate sport in a community, one of the areas that I look at in particular is Featherstone. And I and visited Featherstone to write a piece for Unheard, as well as stuff around the book this year. And you see a if you took that away from that community, you lose such a huge social asset. Something that we're all still trying to create these moments where we come together as a society and enjoy similar things. There's always talk about fragmentation of whether it's, you know, no one watches the same TV shows anymore, the soaps, and we don't have those water cooling moments. Or people talk about, you know, people don't work in the same industries anymore. Always talk about echo dreams and creating them. Sport is still the one thing in particularly for rugby league communities where the majority of the people will may not go to a game, but they'll know what's happening. They'll be following it. You can have those conversations with people. And in the 90s, which sort of fast forward into the end of the book, there's a proposal to sort of get rid of these clubs, embrace the market, merge them together so you'd have a club like Featherston, Castleford, Wakefield, one big super Yorkshire club. It makes brilliant sense on paper. It makes brilliant sense for people who want to sell the game and market it to, to investors. And if you just wanted to create something that was economically a fantastic product like the Premier League, the NFL or something like that. That's what you would do with rugby league. But the thing that gets in the way is the supporters and the people in the town who were, who were fighting for not just their interest and love in the game, but the forefathers who came before them. One of the things I looked up with when I was researching the book was the amount of people who, who wanted to stop mergers happening because they felt a duty to someone who died, whether it was a dad who had took them there or whether it was a family member who passed away. 
yeah. and they were doing it for them. And, and that's a sort of emotional relationship with, you know, a community that, and a town and a sport that I think in politics has been overlooked for a long time. And that's where I think a lot of the Brexit debate around <laughs> why did people vote leave? Why do people care about plays? You know, et cetera, et cetera. We all know those debates that we've had for seven years or so now. I think the league offers a bit of an answer to why people want to defend communities. They want the market is not everything. And for a long time in the 1980s, as I outlined in the book, people thought that it was. And that was a big kickback. Now, rugby league is probably a lot weaker because it made that decision not to embrace the market whole hog. Uh, but I think the people who watch the game and they go every week still, mm -hmm. it was the right thing to do because of the love for the town and the community so it's so important mm -hmm, absolutely and uh, one person who you mentioned earlier was um jim callahan and one of the things that is really striking in the book is um that you make the point of the impact of the cod wars on poor towns like hull grimsby peterhead etc can you explain for those who don't know what the cod wars were what they were and why they had such an impact on ports across the north and their wider communities. Yeah, it's a very good point about the Cod Wars, which became a huge political issue in Britain, which is kind of not talked about too much um, any any longer um, because, you know, times change and it doesn't mm. become... For a long time, this was a, you know, big symbol of, you know, Britain's relationship with the EU and with, you know, foreign nations. So essentially what happened was there was a dispute, on-off dispute for quite a while between Britain and Iceland about, who would fish were um, in, in European waters. And there was disputes between vessels and sometimes the British would go too close to where Iceland wanted to fish. And for, for a long period, there was this sort of standoff. When Britain joined the EEC, they drew up a new quota for the common agricultural policy of around where Britain could fish and fishing quotas. And they favoured in favour of Iceland and drew up a, 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 an area where Britain could no longer fish. And there was talk about the Americans had influenced it because it was one of the bases were. But newspapers like the Daily Mail and the Telegraph and all the rest of it began to see this as a sort of affront to British fishermen. And there's one um, party conference, I think when she was in opposition, where Margaret Thatcher goes to Grimsby. Do you know about this? With a fish. Or yeah. she also repeated it, didn't it? With yeah. a fish. Well, I thought how she's going to defend, uh, you know, these, these fishermen. And for an industry like Hull, which I mean, go back to the book, they used to fish so much, you know, could it literally physically could no longer fish the amount of quota that it could have before, even if they could have wanted to anyway. And this was seen as a sort of first test of, you know, British freedoms and what we could do and what we couldn't do anymore now that we're in the European Union or the EC as it was known then. So that became a standoff for a long time in the 1970s and, and a real sort of, beginning of the sort of mobilization, particularly when you read the press, of anti-European sentiment, you know, within Britain, you know, this debate over our fishing policy and wider, you know, agricultural policy, which many people thought that Britain had got a raw deal because we weren't there when it was originally, you know, signed, you know, originally made and all the rest of it. So yeah, that was that was something that did affect an area like Hull in terms of how much it could actually fish. And, and a lot of unemployment came because of that. And a lot of also... You know, the identity of an area that is used to one sort of industry, particularly based around its rugby rugby league side as well, where a lot of the players would have worked 
in that industry, the knock-on effect massively hit somewhere like Hull, you know, in that yeah. period. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Um, one thing that you also make clear in the book is that in in, in a period when um, you at the at the start of the book, um, you didn't really have many, or you didn't have any um, black members of parliament or cabinet ministers. You had men like Billy Boston and Des Drummond, who were undoubted stars of um, rugby league. How important do you think it was for young black people that they could see men like Boston and Drummond and many others succeeding in rugby league? And what impact do you think it had on race and politics in Britain? It's a really good point, and it's one that is only really now beginning to be explored properly by rugby league historians and rugby league people, because for a long time, black players were just normalised in rugby league in a sense of they would get there would be obviously some racial abuse that I'm talking about, but in terms of actually barriers in terms of reaching to the top or becoming a captain of a team or the way they were treated in, in dress rugby league, not only. Pr- it, it prided itself on that in, in in a sense that it didn't even speak about it. The way that it sort of thought that you showed the world that you could accept black players in your sport is that you didn't champion the first black captain of a national side, which was Clive Sullivan, or the first black player to, to coach a side, which was, um, you know, of Billy Boston when he went down under was one of the first black players and had to suffer, you know, some of the apartheid in South Africa where he wasn't allowed to travel with his side. All these sort mm-hmm. of things into black people in, in society and were happening to black players rugby league. Rugby league sort of just got on with it. In the early 1980s, why I wanted to draw attention to Des Drummond and Henderson Gill and Ellery Hanley, because they emerged in 1981. And the, the 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 hot debate in the media at the time was about, and they called them this, young West Indian men. That's what they were called because they were children of the Windrush generation. And you would, you know, see... Opinion piece after opinion piece saying, problem with West Indian young men, problem with West, what are we going to do? They don't respect our country. They riot on the street. They're never going to work. They're never going to get work, even if they wanted to, no one would want to work with them. And there was there was talk, um, you know, in conservative circles about a, a mass repatriation policy, which I, you know, which again, we saw a little bit laugh at it now because it's sort of like, can you believe? But this was a real, biggest debate happening within the Conservative Party in the early 80s. How do you deal with that, with youth unemployment among um, black people? And we had the sort of Brixton and the Toxteth riot mm-hmm. happen here. Yeah. At the same time as that happens, you have these young players who come from, you know, tough backgrounds. You know, experiencing racism mm-hmm. in the youth. Some of them ending up on the wrong side of the law. Some of them unable to find work, and the only out that they have to express themselves is rugby league. And they end up becoming international players. They end up becoming not only the best players, you know, in the game, they also become the sort of, as you say, the most popular sports people in the country. Ended up with someone like Des Drummond becomes a, a figure on the show Superstars, which I recount, which was the best of the best. And so to have rugby league people promote young black players and say they are the best of British. It was something that was ahead of its time. It wasn't happening in rugby union. It was starting to happen in football. You know, I recount in the book mm. that Anderson makes his England debut uh, at Wembley as the first black mm. player in the country a couple of weeks before Ellery Hamley makes his Bradford debut. Mm. So two, you know, big moments 
of the decade for, for black players. But rugby league players have been playing, you know, for fantastic clubs, you know, what a long time before that. So I think it was hugely important, particularly I also think, you know, in rugby league communities that probably didn't know many black people, didn't work with many mm. black people in the community, or much less than they would do today, for example, to have these figures as aspirational people, to have them as people to look up to, it, I, I'm sure, I mean, we can't really prove it as evidence, can we? Mm -hmm. They are still revered, yeah. you know, in those areas. And they did an audit, I think BBC Sport did an audit of all the historical black figures who have statues in the sports industry, and the majority of them are rugby league because, you know, it's an issue across the country. So it's something that rugby league can be proud of. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think it's interesting as well, uh, the, you know, something that I think he says that rugby league was, you know, doing doing this in uh, a way long before other sports were. Do you think that the way that we perceive um, race and sport and the, the kind of like the 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 um the the, the lack of um feeling of you know animosity towards um black players the kind of racism that they um endured very much in 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 football and in rugby union do you think that the impact of how normalized it was in rugby league then kind of like set a standard for how football clubs and rugby union clubs should um be and, and and kind of like set the standard for how they would represent those black players and how that they should embrace i think someone like ellery hamley for example who by the end of the decade is a giant in british sport not just rugby league and the story mm -hmm. of rugby league in the 1980s is also the story of ellery hamley you know he comes from a you know difficult background gets into trouble with the law when he's when he's younger and admits, you know, in interviews that he made mistakes and that he used that experience of racism that he'd had as a kid, you know, with the police and with others to then sort of shape the way that he approached playing the game, ultimately professional, you know, on the pitch, basically ensuring that nobody was going to, you know, get the better of him physically. Because when he was younger, he knew that he was the person that they were going to punching the tackle because he was black or they were going to, the referee would ignore the racist, you know, punches in the tackles. It was obviously dealt it, aimed at him mm. because he was black. So he built a persona around that. In terms of the question around did rugby league then shape other sports? I actually don't know whether it did or not because rugby league is so um, on the fringes of small mm. ill and would not encourage others to, to follow suit. That I don't know if it would have any influence or whether there was wider societal changes as well that were happening mm -hmm. in those sports that would bring that about. The one thing that is certainly different is that you still saw racist abuse of black England players up into the 1990s that yeah. just wasn't factor in rugby league. I don't want to sugarcoat it and say there wasn't mm -hmm. racist abuse. There was. You know, I spoke to Paul Mason for the book, the uh, journalist, economist, whatever he, he called himself, yeah. the you know, he comes from Lee and he had experience mm -hmm. with in Dead Strowman in the 1980s. Mm -hmm. He made the difference that he thinks he wasn't excusing racism at all. Mm -hmm. But he thought the racism that he saw was quite tribal. So, you know, it wouldn't be happening. And then Dead Strowman would score a try and the opposition fans would, you know, shout out to mm -hmm. race abuse. Yeah. Whereas in football, it was more like systemic. It was like constant mm -hmm. 
of throwing a bananas and booing Viv Anderson. There's some Viv Anderson game where he's playing for England. Yeah. I think he's playing Scotland. Mm-hmm. The boos every time he gets the ball is just like unbelievable. And the only reason they're doing that is because he's black. There's nothing to know what else. Yeah, yeah. That wasn't really a thing in rugby league. There's obviously pockets of people with racism and, and the players, I'm sure, would say that they suffered lots of racist abuse from individual fans, you know, which, you know, is, is, is no one's trying to justify that at all. But rugby league didn't have the huge mass racist, you know, spectator um, of, of players in the way that John Barnes talks about the way he was shooting mm-hmm. playing with fans. Rihanna and Martin Fyatt didn't really help that to that extent. So they were ahead of the time in some respects. I mean, in some some players still in football, you know, obviously suffer racist abuse. We saw yeah. in the year and other things. But um, rugby league, like you say, I think it was certainly a standard to, to follow in that period, yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And uh, one thing that you discuss in the book, and, and you mentioned it at the start of the book, is how different the game was by 1995 as compared to 1980 and that there was very much a kind of a, a change in the way that it was promoted and a, a professionalization and a, an emphasis on um turning supporters and fans into not not just supporters and fans but also into consumers how much do you think that that change was influenced by the grandstand canine incident and how much do you think it was influenced just by a need for the clubs to change as the world itself was changing? And as he mentioned, um, there was a, a, a professionalisation in, in Australia and, and that then influenced the the English game. I, lo- I love the fact that you mentioned the Grandstand K-9 incident. Anyone who doesn't, <laughs> doesn't read the book, um, there's this incident in the 1970s where a dog somehow ends up on the pitch of a match between Leeds and Halifax. And no one knows what to do. No one takes control of the dog on the bitch. The referee doesn't get it off or the play doesn't stop. And it just becomes part of the action on the BBC. And the producers kind of just get on board with it, which you can't really blame the producers for not getting involved <laughs> with the dog on the pitch as players are scoring tries as they're running under the ball. There's just a dog weaving in and out. There's one bit which... There's a player lining up for a kick at the dog. He's like sat by the ball. And as he kicks the ball, he just goes and chases the ball. It's just like this is a challenge cup match at Headingley. It's like insane that that would happen. So the BBC mock it up as a player. They call it K9. And Eddie Waring is commentating and he's asked to make a joke out of it. And he's presenting it's a knockout. So it becomes part of the, the long joke about rugby league. That incident itself was a bit of a wake-up call for the new people that were running the game. Someone called David Oxley, I write about a lot in the book. He saw these things as the as the things that you just could not have if you were to be a professional organisation, and that's what rugby league had stopped being. It just hadn't caught up to the way that, in a way, some something like Snooker had. Snooker was had decided that it was going to, through through Barry Hearn, you know, father of Eddie Hearn, that they were going to create stars, they were going to be professional, they were going to be articulate on the media. When you go to an event, it was going to be a fun event. And rugby league was so far away from that in the 1970s. It was amazing how quickly they, they caught up. I think changes in society, and this is where I want, you know, wanted to talk about the politics in the book. People, businesses to survive, had to start treating the customers better. I talk a bit about a citizen's charter, which is often forgotten, John Major policy, which was about giving people rights for, you know, train refunds and 
consumer rights and all these different things. And it was about catching up to the changes that had happened in industry and business in the 1980s where the person buying a product was treated with much more rights. It was in a competitive marketplace. So there wasn't just one product anymore. You were competing with each other and you would do that on a range of different consumer rights and protections. And rugby league was still lagging behind that in the 90s. And that's why I focused on the Rugby League Supporters Association, a guy called Tony Collins, who's a historian, and I reference a lot of him in the book, and people who are interested in rugby league should go and check out his stuff. He was part of this supporters association that was set mm-hmm. up. And they just wanted to get rights for supporters, you know, access to disabled toilets, women's toilets that still weren't a thing in rugby league in the 1990s, which you can't really believe when you look back at it, that they were allowed to get away with it so long. Um you know, access to hot food at, at games, crash facilities, or the ability to put a pram somewhere. Small things now, which are all part of the match day experience of the sports fan, that just were not part of it. In football as well, you know, football, rugby league were essentially... They, when, when Hillsborough and Heisel, which I'm talking about in the book, which happened in football, they had a knock-on effect on rugby league because the government said, you have to modernise your stadiums. You can't stop treating people like this anymore. And that's where the, the sort of the next era of rugby league begins with the Super League and the the professionalization in the and the, the game that it is today. It comes out of that um, desire to start treating supporters with a bit more respect and understanding that they had a lot of other things that they could be doing over a weekend. You know, I recount one German of Sheffield Eagles that talked about her daughter wanted to go to IKEA because you can get a hot dog and there's stuff happening there. Didn't want to go and watch Warrington v Sheffield play at Wildersburg because it was an absolute hellhole it wasn't great for kids and there was no you know there's no mascots and there's no you know right so people were still finding this out at the time do you know what i mean nothing was really central in the sports industry and today you know everyone knows how you build a, a club and how you market and how you get people in but they people were just sort of doing it on the hoof in this period which made it a really interesting time because i think politically this is where i sort of linked it to new labor i don't really realize this is that much but when you go and look back Tony Blair in the mid-90s, he keeps talking about voters as consumers. Yeah. And you're like, why, why is it, that seems a bit transactional now. I don't think a politician would do it. But it felt like the moment of saying, right, you've got all these options in your life. You can live where you want, you can work where you want, you can go abroad, whatever you want to do. Yeah. And politics will be choice. It'll be the choice of politics, it'll be the choice of party, all the rest of it. And if you're not offering the best choice, in a marketplace of ideas, which is what New Labour thought it was in, you you know, you would get defeated. And I think that's where the sort of rationale for New Labour comes from. There's obviously lots of other things happening around it. It's much more bigger than that. But there was this idea that people were going to choose the political parties that they voted for. It was no longer going to vote Labour because my granddad did or I worked yeah. down the mines. I'm going to have a choice in this. And I think New Labour essentially recognised that. Now we could debate whether they achieved it and what are wrong and what are right, but I think that was one of the things that I realised when I was researching the book, that this was a culture that was happening in the 90s where people were getting more choice and politics is obviously going to reflect that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Do you think that given the, the, the change in the kind of emphasis that was made on, on consumerism in the 1990s, do you think looking at politics now that there's kind of almost more of a rejection of that and a need for and a desire for authenticity in terms of politicians. Yeah. If you think of like um, Boris Johnson, if you think about Jeremy Corbyn, a lot of people, regardless of whether you think that of either of them, 
there was a sense that people thought that they were authentic and they wanted someone authentic to lead them. Do you think that this is something that we're seeing now and we're going to continue seeing in politics, a search for authenticity? And do you think that that's reflected in rugby league at all? Or do you think that there is still kind of an emphasis on the market and consumerism in terms of the relationship between the clubs and the supporters? So re- I've never actually thought about this question. Um, well, I have. I have thought about the authenticity side of it mm-hmm. a lot with the, with the Corbyn and the Johnson about whether that's how they work. I think that is. I think that's right. I think that the the, the conditions that were there in the nineties for New Labour um, were about showing the public that they had, you know, moved the the party on from the old cloth cap of the old trade unions and they were basically situating the body in the modern world and like we say consumerism that happened in the marketization of society you know the, people didn't think that that was ever going to end and i think what happened with the financial crash and all the things that's come after that is that there has been a sort of drive towards politicians that do offer more than retail offers on Policies. I think it was David Axelrod who said, wasn't it, about Labour's policy in the 2015 election was like vote Labour, win a microwave, or vote Labour, win a toaster. And you see that a little bit with some of the politics that Labour still does today. It's like, here's some couple hundred quid off your energy bill, or we're going to do this and you'll get 50 quid in your pocket, or we're going to take this tax off it. It's like, you do get the feeling that people want more. When they talk about mm-hmm. we've got a broader vision for Labour on the Conservative of Brexit, I think it's more than about these retail offers that the consumer politics of the of the nineties. I'm not saying New Labour was just about the retail side of it, but there was a, an expectation that that would be part of the way that people voted. Yeah. Um, and I think we are moving on from that. I think you saw with Boris Johnson, particularly with Brexit, for example, if you had uh, the you know Remain campaign saying this is going to cost you X Y Z, this is going to be worse for you. People's gut reaction was that. If they didn't believe it, or they thought it's worth the economic hit to do something differently, mm-hmm. to build a different Britain, whatever that looks like, we want change. I still think we're in the change period of British politics where the voters want something different. No one's really sort of grasped that. And going back to your authenticity point, that's what Margaret Thatcher was about in 79 at the beginning of the book. There wasn't massive retail politics coming out. There wasn't even real great talk about privatisation, but it, she was able to articulate the feeling that Britain was in decline and that it was going to take hard work to get out of it, but that it was worth doing. And if you go back and watch the Margaret Thatcher documentary on the BBC, which I think is one of the best you know, documentaries, political documentaries of recent years, and the New Labour one, um, which is, is the same production company, but the Thatcher one was, you saw her continually saying, this is going to be painful. This is what we have to do. It's going to take hard work. And that affected the people in the North in the book. Like, that, I look at them and there's, you know, in an area like Widnes, the unemployment that hit was tragic. There's, you know, young people committing suicide. There's, you know, the human cost was huge. But she was articulating whether you agree with it or not, the, the vision side of it. Mm. And that is the thing that's missing now, isn't it, I think. I think no one is in Britain in the current political both parties, all parties, is willing to really say, this is what Britain looks like post-Brexit. This is what we will have to do to 
achieve what we want to achieve, mm-hmm. whatever it is. And um, the retail politics, I think, yeah, I think it's a really good question. I think it's a really good question. I think I think we're beyond the retail politics now. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, we're coming towards the end of the podcast. Thank you for taking the time to speak to me, Anthony. But I do have one final question. Mm-hmm. For anybody who hasn't read the book or who is going to read the book, what one thing do you most want them to take away from the book when they read it? That's another good question. Uh, and I've actually answered this for a few different interviews that I've done because I think people, you know, want to know why did you write it? Because I didn't want to just write a book that was like, here's all the things that happened in rugby league in the 1980s, you know, here's all the tries. Here's all the... I wanted it to ha- sort of really hit people hard and to sort of have some sort of, you know, feeling for the game and for the for the North more generally. I think there's a, a lot been written about post-Brexit about the North and Brexit towns and why they do this and why they shift from one party to another. Often written about people who don't really understand those areas or really have any, you know, deeper understanding beyond, you know, Brexit and mm. left behind areas. And that's where the sort of 1980s premise of the book was being. I wanted to tell a story about a lot of working class people from the North who had ideas, who were aspirational, who, you know, we haven't even had a chance to talk about the women who, you know, came through in this period and pushed back against the sexism that was in the sport. Mm-hmm. They did it for themselves. They didn't really do it for anyone else or for, you know, for wider society, for history or to get in this book. <laughs> they, 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 and, and, and that's the thing about, you know, the North and rugby league and world class culture and why I write about it and why I think it's always worth, you know, exploring further is that lots of lots of people try and put you in a pigeonhole and say rugby league can never do this it'll never do that but actually the people involved in it are the ones that can sort of lead us out of this and if anyone is involved in rugby league or involved in anything in in the north or working class communities and say it can't be done just keep doing what you're doing stay true to yourself and yeah don't you know don't don't listen to outsiders that say you know the north should be this or the north should be that there's obviously, as I say, lots of hardship. I don't want to be someone who says that there is no hardship in the North. There was in the 1980s. But it isn't the misrepresentation that we saw a lot of in the Brexit years that these people are thick or they, they don't know what they're doing. Mm. They deserve they deserve to be sort of impacted because of how they voted in a referendum. Yeah. Like, like that was that. And that was the sort of thing that was driving, you know, driving a lot of it. So, yeah, that's one thing. And I hope people, you know, look at it and go, this game rugby league is quite interesting. <laughs> Maybe we should give it a try. I don't know about that though, because it is, as I say, a very a very niche topic. So it was a pleasure to write the book. It was a it was an unbelievable period. I was lucky to write about rugby league in this period where there were so many great characters. Something that the game probably is lacking a bit now. Um, but yeah, you know, it was it, it as, as a first book to come out. It was it was a real it was a real joy to write. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and I mean, I totally agree with the, the the points that you made there. I'm sure um, people who were either either read the book or going to read the book will will agree with them. Thanks again for coming on the podcast, Anthony. If people want to find out more about you, find out where they can get the book. Where should they go? Yeah, you can buy it in all the usual. I'll do my my sales. I'll do my consumerist sales bits now. I've been talking about <laughs> consumerism now. The time for my big. So you can buy it in all your retailers, you know, Waterstones. You're independent. If you're a sport, you're independent and you don't think it'll stock it, you can ask them, they can order it. 
obviously Amazon, uh, which is good for the the rankings. If you buy it off there, I'll be doing a, I'll be doing a book signing. If we don't date this podcast too much, I'm doing a book signing in Wigan on the 9th of December at Waterstones. Which, if you want to come and chat rugby league and get it signed there, I'll be there then. I'd love to chat to you. And yeah, hope anyone who reads it enjoys the book. And then maybe I'll have labour history and people will be. <laughs> interested in that one <laughs> <laughs> i think they're certainly interested in this one certainly yeah, yeah, interested yeah. in that one as well <laughs> thank you once again for coming on the podcast that's it cheers mate thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast if you've enjoyed it you can subscribe to us on itunes spotify podbeam and amazon music you can also follow us on twitter at debated podcast like us on facebook debated podcast And if you'd like to get in touch with us, whether about appearing on an episode of the podcast or commenting on an episode that you've listened to, you can do so at thedebatedpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. I hope you listen to the next one. (laughs) 